Hello everyone, my name is Alan, and I write Fugue for Thought, the website. Uh, it's been about two and a half years now that I've been doing that, and we came up um, at the end of February on the 200th music post, and actually 400 posts altogether. But the thought crossed my mind about doing a podcast. Um, in my day-to-day -day life, uh, I also host a an English language, uh, English learning radio show. Uh, and I like to talk, but I also like to listen to people talk about what they're passionate about. And so I thought there's all sorts of experiences and stories and, and things to listen to people talk about. And... Um, I decided that, that we would give it a go. A number of years ago, um, I tried to do an interview series, and I got a few of them uh, on the website, but they tended to be a little bit wordy. The first of those interviews that we did was with um, a gentleman named Victor, who is uh, in, he's in Germany, and he is a harpist. So I decided for the first episode of the podcast, it would only be suitable to invite him back uh, to chat a little bit. This is the first uh, recording of any kind of thing that I've, I've done here, you know, with my own equipment and my own software and all of that. And it ended up being, we ended up just talking uh, for a long time. And Victor has a lot of experience and a lot of interesting stories and things to say. So um, we're just going to jump right into uh, the conversation that we had. Uh, my audio quality, unfortunately, is a little bit poor. So um, please bear with that. I hope I will fix it in future episodes, but uh, here we go. This is the first episode of what I hope will be a regular podcast, and uh, I have with us today, hi, Victor. Hello. Hello, for the first hi. time. Hey. I, I thought it was appropriate because, I don't know, it was about two years ago at this point, the, the, the interview that we did. It's true, yeah, I think so. And, and I actually, <laughs> I looked back at it, and, um, and very apparent that I knew nothing about the harp. Not at all apparent. No, 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 that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so I have invited Victor back to be the first guest on, again, what I hope is the Fugue for Thought podcast. You have a, um, you have a YouTube channel, actually, right? I have, yes. How is that going? What do you, uh, what do, you do there? Oh, well, don't ask me because, well, it started off like with regular videos and which became more and more or less regular. <laughs> uh, yeah, but due to my work with the Opera uh, House, actually, this uh, forced me to set off the schedule at some points, but uh, then to concentrate on, uh, on, on the work even more, actually, because I didn't have so much time, so I had to focus more on what the outcome would be. So finally, I think I... I uploaded 22 videos or something 
and then had to stop because uh, I kind of emptied my repertoire. So I had, to, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what happens with classical musicians. They have a set repertoire, and when it's done, it's done. So, so you uh, have, speaking, you mentioned the opera. Um, where, where, it was until recently, right? Where were you? Exactly. Engaged? So, yeah, there was, um, well, better say, a start like that, that in, in Germany we have like many, many opera houses. And uh, in the past, like, let's say 20, 25 years approximately, uh, more and more opera houses started having uh, what's called orchestra academies. So that's basically for people who just uh, finished their studies or are about to finish. Uh, they get the opportunity to work with the um, orchestra for one or two years uh, with a set limit of uh, services they have to do, uh, but mostly like like a full member of the orchestra. So they would play the, all the rehearsals, the concerts, uh, they would know exactly what to prepare. Additionally to that, they, they get the opportunity to uh, do lots and lots of chamber music uh, recitals and concerts. Sure, they also get the opportunity to have lessons with uh, a set member of the orchestra who we call mentor so in my case uh, both harpists from the orchestra were taking care for any preparation which had to be done so that's what i was in so i was two years in uh, the staatskapelle in berlin so that's uh, like the state opera house but we don't only play uh, opera we also play uh, symphony concerts and ballets and the whole repertoire actually so yeah that was my home for the past two years that's that sounds incredible. Uh, I actually I remember speaking to you. Uh, I want to say around the time that the late Pierre Boulez released, he did his. Was it his eighth? He did with Berlin, or am I thinking of Dresden? Uh, it might be Dresden because since I've been here, he hasn't uh, he hasn't appeared anymore. I think he already had some issues with his health, so he didn't come again. Oh, that's to, true. That would have been recently. Yeah. But I've seen like pictures of you with a, a number of. I think it was Zubin Mehta recently. Exactly. Yeah. That's incredible. That was, what was what did you guys perform? Uh, well, actually, it was supposed to be a concert uh, Barenboim was conducting, our uh, chief conductor. And uh, the thing is that apparently he, at one like orchestra meeting, he was very sorry and said that uh, he would like to have at least 10 days off that year. And it would be exactly in the period where we were supposed to have an um, academy concert, which was... Well, a bit special from all the others we had. Normally, we were just playing chamber music in very nice locations in, around Berlin. But the thing is that uh, this time, uh, it was supposed to be all the orchestra academy members, uh, which were at that time, I think, about 27 or 28. So we could do chamber uh, orchestra things, not just uh, chamber music, but uh, we could put like uh, tiny uh, orchestra Mozart pieces and things like that. And apparently, actually, it turned out to be exactly that. So um, he had a set program which was already published but uh, things always happen so you <laughs> change pieces, it's always like that the thing is that uh, the biggest change was that he announced that he uh, would like to have holidays at that time but he has asked his very kind and dear friend uh, Dubi Meta, and he put the question at, in, in such a way that he couldn't say no so that was apparently the, the thing. And uh, yeah, he came, he changed a little bit of the program. He, we were playing uh, Webern, uh, some chamber music for 13 instruments, if I if mm -hmm. remember right. 
Uh, there was Eine kleine Nachtmusik. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, it was kind of everything. I think only the percussionists had nothing to play the poor, <laughs> the poor guy. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I remember, um, I can't remember what the the context was of, of what piece we were talking about, but I, I the thought crossed my mind with all of the pedal work that a harpist has to do with key oh, yeah. changes. What would it be like playing something like Webern or Schoenberg? Oh, uh, well, there are actually pieces they have uh, written. I'm not sure about Vibben, though. Someone told me there is a chamber music piece with a harp in it, and I haven't seen it, so I'm not sure how, how it looks like. Uh, the, th the main issue is for everyone, every composer who uh, went into serialism, 12 tone, uh, the, the thing is that by pushing the pedal, you just changed one accidental but in, if you have to follow the rule of 12 uh, different to, uh, tones every time then this is an issue all i remember the notes. Uh, all the notes all the notes i remember um i once did a master class with ursula holliger who when she died unfortunately she's uh, she was the wife of um, the oboist um uh, heinz holliger and okay, yeah. she you maybe have known about them. And the thing is that the, he wrote many pieces for duo, so duo pieces for him and his, and his wife. But the thing is that uh, he also wrote solo pieces and he is a serious composer. So um, he actually had this issue with how can I manage to change the pedals quickly enough. And uh, he found out in some points, for example, if you use a, a harmonic, which isn't just the octave harmonic, which probably is a uh, uh, tenth or even above that, uh, you might get the accidental you need without even changing the pedal. So you have less work with the, uh, with the legs, but you can replace that one sound. For example, that's, that's, that's a possibility. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, well, generally, we have a great issue because if you look at the works of uh, um, Berg, for example, uh, if it's... Not really serial music at that case, but uh, if it's, for example, uh, the um, Wozzeck or so. We, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we are playing in the state opera house where this work actually has been premiered. So we have a kind of a tradition of playing that piece in, in our house. We use two instruments, which usually, we so two harpists, they usually play uh, most of the opera simultaneously, but there are some sections which are divided in order to ease the pedal work. I we even see. have a third half standing, waiting to play only three notes. <laughs> yeah, so things like I didn't this. think about it. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Actually, I was just talking to someone uh, the other day here. There's a, there's a, a choral director uh, here where I live in Taiwan. Uh, and I asked him if Wozzeck had ever been done here in Taiwan. And he said, yes, uh, there was kind of a, a concert staging of it and some of the music was played. Uh, oh. and, and then he took that back and said no. And in the, what is it? Close to a hundred years now, right? That, that Fotsek has been, you know. Yeah, I think of, so. One of Berg's most famous, you know, he made a lot of money from it. Um, yeah, and it's, it's never been done here. And it would be, it would be incredible to see yeah. You know, in, in the opera house here, we, we don't have uh, the luxury that, that, that you guys do to get something like that. It was his, what, opus? Something early for him, really. Uh, I Seven? even have, wait, I have his, the full score next to me. <laughs> <laughs> I Seven, can I check. Say. Um, da, da, da. Yeah, opus seven is true. 
Yeah. That's incredible. And what about, what about Lulu? Oh, yeah, we usually play them both at the same time. The, the funny thing is actually uh, that you mostly see the same people coming. It's always the same people, uh, which is good because, um, you know, such works which are still unfamiliar to our ear, they need repetition to actually um, make the people understand or at least feel something about it, which which sure. they like. Even Barnboim once uh, stated clearly that it's very, very important to such works to be repeated regularly so you can educate your own audience. And that's actually what, uh, what happens here. So I think uh, every two to three years, we have them again on our schedule. Uh, and as I said, uh, Lulu and uh, Wojtek are coming uh, usually together in a pack. Uh, we had one thing, um, because Lulu wasn't finished, um, right. so there's always this issue what to do with the third act. And um, yeah, because originally I, what I read was that uh, they... Um, I thought they, someone had finished it. Or, or yeah, kind of like... Yeah. There are actually more versions of it right now. So, because originally um, his wife was against uh, uh, completion of the of the work because uh, after she has premiered it, I think somewhere in Switzerland, I'm not sure if it was Zurich or I'm I'm not sure. Anyway, when it was premiered, they did a pantomime for the third act with the pieces with parts of the Lulu Suite, which was finished by him in time. Right, it contained some parts which were intended to be in the third act. So they. Did did some mixture and this was the the way to go for the rest of the time um, we have a genius uh, composer and um, conductor in our house uh, Robert Coleman and he has finished the third act which I think is magnificent how he did that so uh, that's our own state opera house version but uh, you know um, there are yeah there are different versions as far as I heard I think at least two more than that and and what is the the reception like um you know because i think of, of of in germany and austria like you said where where pieces like that premiered where there's a history of that 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 audiences um would would love that kind of thing you know here um I, i've been to again I, li I live in taiwan and i've been in the past few years that i've been going to concerts here i've been to so many Taiwanese premieres of works that are really famous just because yeah. you know they're not maybe as familiar but but what is the reception like generally in the concert hall or the opera house there with with things you know from Webern and Schoenberg and all of them well, uh, there are some conditions here in Berlin which make uh, playing such pieces a little bit less challenging maybe than in other cities. Sure. One, well, first of all, we have an audience which is really, really thankful for almost anything they get to hear. It's amazing to see people to be so emotional about any thing actually that has been presented on the scene. I studied in Leipzig and there's a complete different atmosphere. The people there judge much harder on every detail than they do here in Berlin. I have well, the feeling... Because uh, when I think of... Leipzig, I think of Bach and Mendelssohn, yeah, and, and kind of the conservative. Totally <laughs> right, right. And that's kind of my. No, they they have premiered uh, contemporary works and they have played them and they have regularly them on on their schedules. But the thing is that uh, Leipzig is first of all still feels 
uh, or co- considers itself a metropolis of, of classical music, basically. Sure. So, I mean, what the legacy Mendelssohn left them uh, makes them believe till now that they are the music center of the world. That's, that's sure. honestly like that. The thing is, when you come to Berlin, you have not only a much bigger variety of people coming to a concert hall, uh, you have also tons of tourists who turn uh, absolutely. I mean, you have three opera houses and I think about seven or eight professional orchestras who are situated in the city and they are all great. But everyone tries to get like a specialty in a certain way. So to have a specialized repertoire, for example. And if you go after that, uh, we kind of, so the state opera house uh, has this focus on um, either like the late great romantic uh, works, Bruckner, Brahms, and all those have worked really, really great with the orchestra, but also like the early 20th century is really, really uh, recurring on our uh, schedule. And um, when the people come, as I told you, that you always see uh, similar faces in the concert hall when we played uh, Wozzeck, for example. I don't know, even in Germany, how many opera houses can say they can have like 75, 80% sold out halls regularly when they are playing a set of six or seven shows, one after the other, uh, like like during maybe two weeks time or so sure. of, uh, of an opera like that. It's it's specialty of this city, actually. I don't know where wherever else you could do things like that. Well, that's wonderful because... Well, it's something. It's something that I would, you know, I would love to to see and hear. Um, yeah. We don't have number one actually locally. I will say in in Taiwan, I'm, I've been surprised. We have even just in Taipei, the the biggest city here, we've got a number of orchestras that I've heard that are, you know, I'm surprised that they're better than anything that I've kind of heard locally when I was in America. But but opera is is rare. Um, yeah. We had last year we had a Tchaikovsky opera and then. Earlier in the year, we had Beethoven's only opera. Uh, there's been a couple Mozart things, but it's like a couple every year here. So, you yeah. know, a, a Mozart, the, the opera that, you know, you've seen for 15, 20 times or something might not be something that people get excited about, but, you know, I'll take what I can get. I would love to see Wozzeck. Um, yeah, can't imagine. The, the thing is, uh, I've seen this generally uh, in, in to create an opera house takes much more effort in any way than uh, put, setting everything up for a symphony orchestra. And as I was working for three months in Thailand as a teacher, I remember when I was there, I I've just found a flyer uh, of the, um, I don't know if it's like the Royal Opera House. I don't remember how they call it, but they have an opera house in, in Bangkok, which doesn't have a regular schedule. And the orchestra sure. is more or less moving from the three uh, ensembles. They are back and forth and they right. are like turning around. But they have uh, done the first entire ring cycle in Southeast wow. Asia. Yeah. So... Wow. Uh, I, I, and I know when I read also who was invited, who came to sing, to play, to do, you, you have to bring all the knowledge, which is, you could, you could say we, could, we uh, have everything set in place with a tradition and people know how it should sound and how it works. Sure, sure. 
everything is new to to Asia, and therefore uh, I can I can only I can only try to imagine. I'm probably I'm not even able to uh, really understand what it takes to put uh, an opera or even like the Ring Cycle. So many singers choir <laughs> you have stage director you have uh, everything a choreographer you have to put even like decorations and stuff you have to find the people to know how it's done and if you don't have an opera house with a regular schedule where are you going to do that you're going to do that so uh, yes yeah. that's, that's incredible no i actually i had i'm not sure here in taiwan if they must have been done here i i do know i do know that it was about about 60 years ago here that they did Uh, I want to say it was again in a in a concert setting that they did some of the music from the Ring Cycle, but I don't know. I want to say one of them was put on in the past five years or so, but you know the, those operas are not uh, controversial. They're not any, well anymore uh, yeah. relative to some other things, but that's something. Also, it just being a huge production, you know, we don't we don't get nearly as often. Um, I completely forgot that you spent how much time in in Thailand. Actually, just three months. So it was uh, one trimester. Yeah. How? What was that like? That's that's a bit of a uh, culture change. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that. that's my side of the world. When were you there? I forget. I was uh, wait. Uh, I finished my diploma in 2010. This was my first engagement right afterwards. So uh, I started in uh, September 2010 and uh, got back in December. So because because yeah. I've been to Thailand a few times. So we were at least on the same side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> we were, but we were not in Thailand at the same time. That's um, what's what's the music culture like there classically? Um, well, they really do a lot of effort to uh, make a lot of effort to to get it going, to have a regular schedule. I, there was a military orchestra, which was quite good, uh, but also two other ensembles. I'm not sure how how it is right now there, but because I'm not anymore that much in contact. But the sure. thing is, that, uh, when I was there, I, I visited uh, a staging of uh, the Mary Vido, if I remember right. Uh, it was uh, um, carried out by the, by the Mahidol University, which has a music department. And they uh, invited an, I think, an Austrian stage director who oh, wow. made... Uh, it was so cute. He, <laughs> he really was able to combine characteristics of the Thai culture with this very European uh, story. So you had like uh, a little shrine. The singers, when they passed by, they were bowing, but they were oh. dressed in uh, uh, tailcoats and, uh, and, and <laughs> cocktail dresses. It was so cute. I can't even... Yeah, fantastic. Oh, and, wow. uh, Yeah, and I mean, if you consider that the orchestra members were all students from the conservatory and they had no invited soloists and everything, it was just the stage director and the uh, singing coaches. Uh, and I think even the conductor, he was, uh, he was a guest. Uh, but everything else was the manpower of that uh, university, and they done a wonderful job. And uh, that's basically how it is done in in Bangkok. So you have people who are very well educated and who try their best, but everything everything is a little bit re not restrained. It's maybe too much to say, but uh, there are still borders of the local culture, which sure. um, which have to be like like slowly opened it up a little bit so the people 
actually also understand something which is coming from the outside. I'm not saying that it has to do anything with, with cultural education because they are very, very well uh, educated people over there. Sure. It's not the, the issue. It's rather, if you have something that new, how you are going to take it if you don't find anything relatable to your own background? So exactly. that's basically the, the, the question they are working with. And, and I think that's something that, that you hit on that's interesting because I, um, I took... Uh, I took piano lessons here with um, a, a friend who's at one of the, the local conservatories, a university here. And, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's a similar situation here where there's not nearly as much kind of interest in, in modern music or, or some of that stuff that would go on in Berlin or New York or Paris. But yeah. where it does happen is among the university kids. Yes. Especially nowadays with, you know, you hop online and, and you, can, you can find music and, you know, stuff like Steve Reich or, or whatever. Absolutely. That, yeah. that, um, maybe the, the normal kind of concert going, ticket buying uh, average person is not going to be interested in or know about. But like the university kids, it's kind of the classical music version of like, you know, underground indie music yeah those are the kids those are the people who kind of will go and dig that kind of stuff up that's really cool yeah it's true yeah i've seen this also here in berlin you have like young um uh, auditorium and uh, who is very well educated also because uh, opera houses are putting more and more effort in the past like 10 15 years to educate the young people if if you see um, the story of the divided uh, germanies uh, in the eastern part there was um huge push for the classical uh, culture and music in general because uh, you would have like tiny cities, if you have like uh, 30,000 people living there, they would already have the right to have an orchestra. And the more people would live in that region, the bigger the orchestra was, then there were singers added, then there was a ballet added. And then you <laughs> have, it's, it worked like that. And then you have like actors and then you have a full-blown uh, five uh, how do you call it? High, like like category theater, which has like puppet theater, which has oh, wow. uh, actors, everything. So um, and then I think when the city had about eighty thousand, it was able to have such a house in their of their own, which meant that if you look on the on the map, you had. Uh, just a, a crazy number of orchestras and theaters everywhere. everywhere. As, as, as a matter of pride, right? As a matter of pride, as a matter of, yeah, sure. I mean, um, you, you might call it propaganda, yes or no, but the okay. thing is that, yeah, I mean, it was, it was used to uh, indoctrinate people in a certain way, but when you have such a vast number, you cannot control everything. Right. So, and it wasn't Russia after all, where like, I remember about the, around the fifties or sixties or something when they wanted to play, uh, maybe it was just a joke, but then when they were, wanted to play Taviata, it ended up to be a 30 minutes version of it or something because <laughs> <Right>. it was <laughs> censored so much but it, it, things like this didn't happen in, in the eastern part of Germany we were kind of progressive also with, when it came to the repertoire there was someone was once saying about the repertoire of the Gewandhaus in Leipzig during this era uh, that there was so much Shostakovich, actually, they had <laughs> to throw up after that. So, uh, really? yeah, apparently there was Shostakovich in every symphony concert. Uh, well, well which he did is, write a lot. 
That's true. That's true. <laughs> but it's not the case anymore, for sure. Uh, the sure. thing is that if you have such a dense cultural life, uh, and actually, uh, for example, when when there was like uh, a factory somewhere and they had a jubilee, they would get the opportunity as every uh, cultural building was the property of the of the people more or less. Right. Uh, they would uh, get a full show for them alone. The theater would be reserved and they would get any show they wanted on scene or a symphony concert or something. Uh, and they, the, could, they could make requests and get their, get their show? Sure, sure. It would happen like that. Uh, or it, like, for example, um, the children would go regularly with their classes. They would know, first of all, they would get an introduction and then they would go to the theater and the theaters were blown with young people. People who are now coming as a regular uh, um, audience to our theaters. Sure. So that's that's the base i mean also in leipzig why do we have that uh, tradition and that uh, little bit snobby situation over there because there in leipzig there is the biggest music school in the whole of germany with over 7000 children coming regularly to their music lessons and that's After the one that mendelssohn started is it not the leipzig that's actually the conservatory, but we have also music school where the the children come after school oh, wow. and get there and there are 7,000 people in there. They have like the biggest kids. symphony. It's crazy, you know, right? <laughs> they have the biggest symphony orchestra of a music school. Uh, they, they can basically when it was, I also uh, played sometimes with them and we were playing, for example, uh, Beethoven and there was Mendelssohn for sure. And they would try to pack uh, all the, the, the musicians they had uh, and they put them with an instrument in. So we had finally like a Wagner uh, outlay wow. of orchestra playing Mendelssohn, <laughs> like four clarinets, eight uh, or to 12 horns and stuff like this, but we, because they wanted to put everyone in to play, right? But, wow. Uh, yeah, you know, but, that's, you but that's so wonderful, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. When you do that, you can actually build on people like that to uh, have also a little bit more experimental... Um, how do you say uh, repertoire? One side you can you can experiment also with the staging, for example, which I think Germany a little bit does too much in the past. So honestly, yeah, really? <laughs> well, we have this tradition of the so-called regie theater, so which means that you have a stage conduct uh, director who's trying to make uh, his own interpretation of of the work which led right. to some extremes in the past, which I honestly, I mean, it was for the scandal and it wasn't for the art. And, sure, for the uh, effect. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, um, now I have to go back to Leipzig because of that. Uh, there was, uh, we have an opera house there and the Gewandhaus is playing also uh, in the opera house. And uh, one year they uh, got a new general stage director, which is um, Konvichny was his surname. He comes from a family of um, all sorts of cultural, um, culturally important people. And the thing is that uh, he was very, very famous for some extreme works of, uh, of his in the past. He's done... Uh, crazy works already in, in the Democratic Republic, so in uh -huh. the, uh, past times, right? And the thing is that um, when he came, he introduced a complete new reading to, and I say it again, Leipzig is one of the most conservative places on <laughs> earth. Maybe not the best I, place to do that? Not at all. I mean, the opera in Leipzig was one of the best 
visited opera houses in Germany. I think it was visited in generally about 97% of their wow. shows were, yeah, I can imagine. The thing is that when he appeared, it dropped down to 60 or something. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people running out of, uh, I mean, it's also a thing. People, when they don't like, they would stand up and leave. And some even with commenting while leaving. Uh, I'm not sure if it's etiquette to do that, but uh, it's truly <laughs> shows that the people know what they have to expect. And, and they take if, it seriously. Absolutely. When the expectation isn't met, they won't applaud. So, uh, I, you know, it's, therefore it's, it, it is hard here to really um, to mess up because people will know exactly what you've done and they will sure. make you feel. <laughs> and they'll let you know. Well, I, mm -hmm. I, think, of, I think of places like, um, what was it? Well, even, even something, you know, that what nowadays is kind of, it, it's so common in the repertoire, like the Mahler symphonies. Yeah. But even, even before that, you know, they would, they would kind of, struggle and find a place that would premiere a symphony like Mahler's third was it it was premiered in, in Essen or somewhere right that was yeah. kind of not a place not it's not Berlin it's not Vienna it's not um just because kind of maybe the atmosphere it was a place that would that would be amenable to that kind of thing yeah we actually had um oh I always forget the name the um the abduction from the surreal what is it in German Sereia, the the Mozart uh, opera, the uh, yeah, the, the yes. We we had that here, um, and it was it was done in the concert hall, and the acoustics and things were not quite right. But it was very interesting because uh, they took all of the German dialogue and they did it in Chinese. Wow. Um, and 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 on, on the one hand, that's a very that's a logistic decision because it's much easier for all of the performers who were local to speak. Yeah in Chinese than, than learn the lines in German. Um, but, but they did something that was really interesting. And at the time, I thought it was a little bit, I didn't know if I liked it or not. They, they used kind of the local dialect, what we call Taiwanese, which is a very colloquial kind of slang dialect okay. of Chinese. And then in, they actually changed some of the dialogue to reference, uh, we had a local election here recently and some news items and things that they kind of slipped into the dialogue um, in this Mozart opera. And on the one hand, I thought, I don't know if that's, you know, don't like, don't mess with Mozart. But then on the other hand, I thought maybe, maybe that's something that he would appreciate because Mozart, from what I could tell, at least, was it was a political person and incorporated, you know, social commentary into stuff. Yeah, well, I'm quite sure he would approve that because the thing is, um, the the inferior of is is a very uplifting uh, theme. It, it does anyone die there? I don't think so. Um, uh, no, I don't think they do. No. Not that I remember. Yeah. So the it's thing true. is, you see, I mean, you know, with this type of work, any opera buffa, any uh, operette, which is uh, being staged here in Germany, for example, they are always a stage for even not even hidden commentary on, on political or social sure, uh, situations. Yeah. Always. Um, there's a tradition over here uh, to make it, I mean, you, you want people to laugh in, in this uh, staging. You want to, to make them happy in a certain way. Sure. And, 
and as an artist, we we seem to have a very very relaxed life, uh, but we need our possibilities to 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 formulate our anger and to put it in on the set. So sure, it was, yeah. I mean, you will see many stage directors who really are looking uh, with people of the theater. What can we? Uh, add up in, in the spoken dialogues, for example. It's very, very common to, change, to make changes like that. But if it's about the language of an, of an opera, um, well, I grew up in Dessau, which has a very, very old uh, theater. And um, I'm not sure when the tradition started, but uh, at some point, all uh, the operas have, uh, w which were presented there were translated into German. Uh, the last director of the theater we had here, um, Johannes Felsenstein, who was uh, the son of Walter Felsenstein, who kind of uh, rejuvenated the uh, entire idea of how to direct an opera and made uh, incredible changes uh, in the Komische Oper here in Berlin during the 60s. Uh, so he was someone who would, um, because he was a fluent Italian speaker, he would uh, translate the operas himself. He did entire cycles of uh, Verdi and Schiller and uh, showing... Uh, in so German. In, in German, generally, wow. yeah. So um, trying to combine the original Schiller's, the text by Schiller and with the libretto and make it work. So the criticism was immediately there, like, why would you do that? Because uh, you can't sing as properly in, in German as you can sure. in and everything. Uh, especially also it wasn't really necessary as i mean we have wonderful things with uh, subtitles uh, possibilities <laughs> right to really hide it uh and and to give everyone the opportunity to hear the opera as it was intended to um though on the other side if it's such uh, a a concept of really putting the literature literature next to uh, the the music like he tried to make this uh, Schiller Verdi Zyklus uh, cycle so um, then maybe it's not the the worst thing to actually think whether you can or cannot uh, change the um, language of the opera and uh, you c you can definitely discuss about it so uh, it's in it's in conversation opener you can well in this this uh, this opera of Mozart's that we were just talking about I as, as I recall it was kind of a thing where they had decided that he would do it in German and not in Italian yeah uh, at, at the time um, as as a as a native English speaker living in a Chinese speaking country it's interesting for me to go see opera uh, <laughs> because I I speak Chinese um, yeah. but obviously I read English or anything else much faster than I read Chinese. Yeah. Uh, so, so last year, when we went to see uh, Fidelio, which was put on by the National, uh, the National Orchestra, it was a phenomenal production. In fact, it was um, the Opernhaus Zurich who came and did, did the, the production. It was fantastic. Wow. We were fortunate enough that they prepared the marquee in um, the original German. Yeah. Uh, and then the marquee also had Chinese and English translations that were quite good. So, so we could follow the original text, the locals could read Chinese, and then I could read the English. When uh, another orchestra did the Tchaikovsky opera, the Eugene Onegin, yeah. they did only Russian and Chinese. 
Oh, it's <laughs> so, <a> combination. <laughs> so, uh, and I actually, I studied some Russian for a while, but I, I can't, I can't speak it anymore. So I, I kind of had, I was stuck with Russian and Chinese. And so I, I kind of did my homework beforehand with all of the dialogue because it's too dark to read the, you know, the libretto in the, in the concert house. But that was, I didn't think about it until we got in and, uh, well, I don't, I don't have the English marquee, but you know, that's, you know, there, there's a thing, uh, a tradition people forget about. Uh, if you go, for example, in, to the Arena di Verona in Italy to see uh, any opera they're presenting there, there is a tradition of holding uh, uh, a candle in your hand during the right. show. And this was just because the people were reading the libretti books during the, the, during the, the performance. Operas. They were Italians. They read their books on Italian during the show to understand every word. It was at different times when, this, when this, these operas premiered. premiered. If it was uh, Verdi, if it was uh, Bellini, uh, those composers wouldn't be so well known in our days if uh, they wouldn't have uh, found the right uh, libretto writer during their time. It was uh, a connection which we tend to forget about how important the word was uh, sure. uh, next to the music. Uh, if we remember also, I, I'm not sure exactly which opera it was. I think it was Le Nozze, where, um, for example, even um, the poor Mozart had the problem that his name appeared much smaller than this of <laughs> the, the, lib the librettist. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, well, that was a political thing uh, because the libertist wanted to kick him out of the production at all. But uh, this, is, this is a thing which we tend to forget about, that the word was extremely important and the word, how it was put, how it was said, who wrote it was sure. a main key to success or to complete disaster of the opera. I'm terribly unfamiliar with opera. You and I have talked about this before, but it, but it is from the standpoint of relating to kind of the common people or kind of communicating with the audience on a different level than, you know, symphonic music. Uh, well, if, if the development went into that direction. If you see uh, the effort Wagner has put in his operas to, first of all, when he started writing the operas, he started not with the music, but with the text. He was his own uh, librarian. He did everything. He did everything. For <laughs> sure he did everything. He was so fantastic and the genius. And Unbelievable. The Absolutely. <laughs> but the thing is that um, when he started with the, with the text, he... Uh, had the intention to make the text equal to the music and to make the text uh, giving the structure rhythmically and everything to the music. Uh, so it was a musical element, which also when you look what he actually presented and see in this whole stories of, of, of legends, which you could actually um relate to their to the time when it was premiered and to uh, find like social and political um statements in that opera in the mythology exactly in the mythology and everything so uh he wanted to actually lift up the opera from being uh entertainment to be much more than that because he does he he was also the one to decide that symphonies after uh, after Beethoven aren't going to work. Right. Aren't and that was a time when they kind of didn't. Yeah, because, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, also, um, as, I mean, how much 
how many angry comments was uh, Beethoven dealing with after uh, putting a choir in, in the symphony? In the symphony, so, right. That was a shock that was unimaginable. That was considered uh, bad taste and everything and the end of the music. So the, the composers after Beethoven not only knew exactly that this was the way to go, they were in, in a very, very difficult situation to decide what is not now going to happen because uh, Beethoven opened the door to either combine those two musical directions, opera and, and, and symphonies, what actually Wagner was doing later on to actually combine the, the two ideas, uh, or to, to be more conservative, like Brahms, for example, uh, sure. was, and try to kind of go on with that idea, uh, separating them even, even further. I mean, there is no Brahms opera. Yeah, I never did. <laughs> so uh, even though maybe, maybe one day we will find like a fragmentary of something, and that would be amazing. I can't really imagine. Well, he has his, uh, what, the Requiem and then a lot of choral stuff, I guess, but no... He was so much more experimental when he was young, right? Uh, also, probably common with most people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, in a way, if you look, for example, um, uh, there are two works mainly uh, he wrote with harp. So this is his Requiem. Uh, and this was like his breakthrough, I think at age 19 or something. Was it, was it that early? Yeah, it was. It, wow. it, it was basically his first piece to ever be recognized. And, uh, and a huge career push. We cannot even imagine what, what that meant. Um, and there was another piece uh, for a female choir, uh, two horns and harp. It's uh, called the Four Songs, I think, for for a choir. It's something oh, wow. like this. Fear leader, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, and uh, you can find a lot of like chamber music, chamber orchestra uh, pieces with very very. Uh, experimental uh, settings of, of, of musicians and anything. And then suddenly, I'm not sure if it was his love for Mrs. Schumann, but uh, <laughs> uh, something happened and he, he became this very conservative, that's maybe not right to say because he, he was experimental still after that in his own way and sure. trying to push uh, the, the borders and to, to enlarge like the the possibilities uh, but to to that only extent that he wouldn't use a choir in his symphony in, in, sure, uh, in, in a different way than wagner would you know yeah was, was yeah uh, definitely definitely that's why the why wagner got so much hate and uh brahms was considered <laughs> those two be, camps absolutely absolutely i wonder what a brahms opera would be like yeah, absolutely. I cannot imagine because uh, on one side he uh, was famous for using really not a lot of musical material and making yes. great works with it. And on the other side, an opera is exactly the opposite of it. You need tons of musical material. Huge and volume of Absolutely. Stuff. And I mean, even if you look, now no, that's a huge jump, but if you look at the uh, full score of Wozzeck, which is kind of a, a real catalog of everything that, that has been written, uh, every musical style, every musical form, everything is packed in that opera. It's amazing uh, when, you, when you start reading it. You cannot hear it, really. Like, for example, when there is a fugue, a choral, a, 
uh, Canaan, a uh, variation. But so he just used all in very kind of modern language. Yeah, I mean, uh, he used all this this different styles and possibilities, and definitely the sound which is coming out of the opera has a different feeling to it, has a different feeling to it, but uh, because you cannot really hear all the details he has written down. But um, if you look that uh, how many musical ideas he has used for for his work which is very fragmentary which has tiny bits appearing only once and then maybe they come back or they or they develop in a different way in a symphonic way mostly you could say so sure. um can then you wonder what would uh, how possibly Brahms would have worked would go about it yeah because uh, really um on one side, he was really able to make something that already has appeared once sound completely new. So this is definitely one of his qualities. Um, and then again, is that enough to create an entire opera? That's a question, which even uh, if you look at Beethoven, I'm not sure if he answered it right with his video, which is de definitely a uh, genius work. But he, at the end of the day, will be always remembered as the symphonic composer for a reason.